0: The last part of the song, A Mighty Fortress, says, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. This passage is pretty amazing. It's incredibly sobering on the one hand, and it's beautiful and wonderful on the other. This passage shows us a group of Christians who suffered intensely and rejoiced in it. They suffered tremendously and they had joy. And they rejoiced knowing that they were going to suffer. That seems strange. But God wants to make us the kind of people that do the same. God wants to make us the kind of people who take risks to love and show compassion. Those who throw aside the need for comfort and ease, who risk their own safety, security, possessions, and maybe even their own lives in the cause of love and good deeds. So, how do we stir this up in one another? And I think that's what this passage is about. In this text, we see a group of Christians who see brothers in need and step in, knowing that it's going to cost them, knowing that it's going to risk their safety or their things, knowing that they were going to suffer for it. They possessed a serious, deep, and profound joy, which empowered them to suffer even even to choose the path of suffering and the path of compassion. They chose the path of suffering to show compassion. That's what they did. They ch- chose it. It wasn't just that it was incidental. They, they knew that if they did certain things, it would cost them, and they did it, and they did it joyfully. The key to this kind of joy, this invincible, courageous joy, when faced with great suffering is in confidently knowing that what we have in Christ is infinitely better and more durable than anything this world can offer. Let me say that again. The, the key to invincible and courageous joy when faced with great suffering is in confidently knowing that what we have in Christ is infinitely better, not just a little, It's infinitely better and it is infinitely more lasting. It's not just a little more lasting, infinitely more lasting than anything this world can offer us, anything that that we can have in this physical life right now. And so if and when something is stripped from us or taken from us, our joy is not taken from us because our real treasure in Christ is not taken from us. Let goods and kindred go, right? This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Jesus said, rejoice when you're maligned or mistreated for my sake. And then he says this in Luke chapter six, leap for joy. Don't just privately rejoice. Go find a place and dance. Leap for joy. This is the kind this kind of joy is what fuels a faith that will endure to the end. That's what Reed that's, that was one of the main points of Reed's message that we are those who have faith To preserve our souls, we are the ones, we are those who have faith that endures to the end. This kind of joy in Christ and all that is ours in his fuels that kind of faith that actually endures to the end. Last week we all stood together and it was powerful. We stood together and we repeated verse 39. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their, th- their souls. This joy that these Christians had is what leads Christians to even take risks in living publicly for Christ, joyfully accepting whatever consequences come. Publicly living for Christ. Not, you know, like I have all these beliefs, strong beliefs, but they're private and it's publicly living for Christ, joyfully accepting whatever consequences come. In this passage, the author's intent is clear. He wants to encourage the faith of these timid and fearful Christians. Remember last week's message, the the passage, verse 26, started with this serious warning of the fearful expectation of judgment of those who continue walking and living in sin. And so after this strong warning about the serious dangers of that and of shrinking back and of the fearful prospects of judgment, Remember verse 31 says it's a fearful thing to to fall into the hands of the living God. After saying that, the author wants to encourage them and he encourages them by reminding them of their past. And it's interesting how he chooses to encourage them. Earlier in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter six, right after a serious warning, the author encourages them and he says, remember your love for the saints. Here he does something different. He doesn't remind them of their love. He reminds them of how they suffered for Christ joyfully. How they suffered well. How they handled persecution and turmoil and difficulty. He reminds them of how well they suffered when they were first born again. Verse 32 starts with, But recall the former days, When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Enlightened here, I think, refers to salvation. It's referring to when the the light of the gospel shone into their hearts and they believed. Now, notice he doesn't say, when you were enlightened, you suffered. That would have been true, but he says it differently. He says, when you were enlightened, when you were born again, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. You went through a hard struggle with sufferings. The word translated struggle is the Greek word athlasis, from which we get our word athletics. In other words, this suffering was like a contest. It was like combat. Maybe a wrestling match was in the author's mind, perhaps. And what was this combat with? Sufferings. You endured a great combat, a great struggle, a great match, a great contest with sufferings. What they endured was real, it was hard, it was serious, it was was something that they were engaged in, it wasn't some abstract thing that maybe they sort of suffered, it was something that they got down on the ground and wrestled it out with sufferings. And there, really are, there are basically three groups that the, these, these believers fell into, one of three groups of sufferers. The first group experienced public reproach and affliction. Verse 33 says, Sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. To be reproached is to be denounced or to be verbally harassed or to be slandered. So they were denounced, they were denounced as troublemakers or evildoers. They were slandered slandered as those who were causing problems, perhaps. We know that up until the time of Constantine in the fourth century, it was very common for Christians to be scapegoat in the Roman Empire. If there was a plague, they blamed the Christians. If there was civil unrest, they blamed the Christians. If there was a natural disaster, the Christians were blamed. Even in AD 64, Nero set Rome on fire because he had aspirations of building it in his own glory and who did he blame? The Christians. I'm reading a Christian history book to, to a couple of my kids and uh, Polycarp, when he was brought into the arena before the big crowd of pagans who were calling for him to be eaten by lions, they, they, uh, they accused him of being godless Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, I mean, this godly man, he was a disciple of the apostle John. They accused him of being godless and mainly because they, Christians would not worship the pantheon of Roman gods. They worshiped one god, Jesus, in, in the name of Jesus, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So they accused him of being godless and they accused him of all sorts of things. They were the scapegoat. So these Christians were an easy target of slanderous reproach. They also experience what's called affliction, which the word affliction is kind of a general term meaning pressure. It's to be in a pressure cooker or to be pressed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.8, we are afflicted or experiencing affliction in every way but not crushed. So in other words, we are pressed, We are pressured but not completely squashed. (laughs) This pressure undoubtedly included the pressure to deny Christ, the pressure to be a good Jew and deny this messianic figure, Jesus. No doubt included, hey, take a look at your family, your business, you don't want them to suffer just because of this faith in Jesus, do you? It undoubtedly included, hey, pledge your allegiance to Caesar. Give a pinch of incense to Caesar. So these Christians were denounced and pressured. And it should be noted that usually it wasn't a problem if Christians worshipped Jesus. It's that Christians wouldn't add Jesus to all the other gods. And it's that they refused on the one day a year to throw a pinch of incense into the fire and pledge allegiance to Caesar. They said, no, Jesus is Lord. So they suffered. All of this was done in public. It says you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. It was not done behind closed doors. These Christians were made a public spectacle for everyone to see. The second group of those who suffered were thrown into prison. Verse 34 says that some of these Christians had compassion on those who were in prison. So some Christians here in these Christians in probably Italy at the time were thrown in prison. It seems obvious from this that it was not just an angry mob of Roman citizens who were persecuting the Christians, but this was was coming down from on high. This was government-sanctioned opposition and persecution because they were thrown in prison. Now, it's not hard to see how the first group of Christians, those who were reproached and afflicted, could easily become the second group of Christians if they didn't give in, right? If they didn't succumb to the pressure, Eventually, they were thrown in prison. And the third group of Christians who were persecuted or who who suffered here were those who cared for the Christians in prison. And the author really focuses on this group, and I think for good reason, because we see something astounding about these Christians, something that we need to take to heart. Verse 33 says that they suffered by being partner, partners with those who were so treated. They became partners with those who were experiencing reproach and affliction and especially with those who were in prison. They endured suffering by being companions, fellowshipping with, being brothers and sisters, seeing those in prison as, hey, they're, they're one of us they need help this is amazing it actually gives the idea that they could have stayed out of it and avoided suffering you could have said hey we're going to stay we're going to keep our noses clean we got we got kids to think about we got a business to think about we're going to stay out of this but they didn't they didn't instead verse 33 says they were partners with those who were so treated. The word partner here means to share in something. Meaning they shared in the sufferings of those who suffered. Paul talks about this in Philippians 3 when he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings these believers did that they were they brought themselves into fellowship with those who were in prison they were companions with those who were in prison they deliberately intentionally chose to partner with those in prison and probably with those being publicly reproached and afflicted as well Verse 34 gives us the explanation. Listen to these words. Why would they do this? Why would they do this? They had a strong motivation. Here's what it is. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. That's what they did. Since you knew you had a better possession and an abiding one. These Christians suffered because they had compassion on those in prison. That was the reason they did it. They had compassion on them. Probably what they did is they went and visited them. They brought things that they would have needed to survive in a Roman jail. In a Roman jail, you didn't get three square meals a day. Paul gives us a clue of what it was well, he doesn't give us a clue of what it was like necessarily, but of what his conditions were like in 2nd Timothy chapter 4 when he's writing, of course, to Timothy. And he tells Timothy, Timothy to bring him some things. He says, when you come, bring my books, bring my parchments. But he also says, bring my cloak. And then, one of the, I think it's the second to last verse of the book says, please try to come before winter. For good reason. It'd be, it'd be nice to have a cloak in a Roman jail at wintertime. So these Christians, they, they had compassion on those in jail. They brought them food, perhaps. They brought them items that they would need, maybe warm clothes and so forth. And because of that, they suffered. Perhaps they also took care of children, of, uh, ch- children of whose, whose parents were in prison. But the, the point is they had compassion on them. They acted in love. Th- their compassion moved them to do something. Their love for them moved them to do something something it's been said that you can give without loving but you can never truly love without giving you can give without loving but you can't really love without giving giving of yourself first and foremost and then like john says let us not love in word and word or talk but in deed and in truth that's what these christians did the word compassion is so important for us to understand. There's only one other place in the New Testament it's used and it's in the book of Hebrews. And it's in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. It's translated there sympathize and it's speaking of Christ. And here's what it says. It says for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize or have compassion with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The word compassion or sympathize means to be affected with the same feeling as another. Christ was affected with the same feeling as us in that he became a man and was tempted in every way as we are. Which is why he's such a merciful and wonderful high priest. He's not not unlike us. He was made like us in every way. Jesus sympathizes or sympathized with us by entering into our condition. And these Christians sympathized or had compassion on those in prison by entering into their condition by entering into their suffering. You could imagine what these Christians may have thought as they deliberated whether or not to show compassion to those in prison. It's like, hey, listen, if we bring a meal to Joe and his family in prison, we're gonna have a bullseye on our back. Maybe they were even threatened, if if you do that, we know where you live. Perhaps. We see what happened to them. It says that their property was plundered. Plundered could I think the New American Standard translates it seized. So either it was taken or just robbed. I mean, taken or looted I should say. Um, plundered could be translated robbed, seized, looted. You know, their property was. They risked their property. They lost it. The word actually is, is, is used to describe what a defeating army does to their enemy. They take their plunder, or they plunder them. They take their stuff. They had compassion, and because of that, because they acted in compassion, their property was plundered. It was robbed. It was seized. It was taken. Now, these Christians didn't take it sitting down. Their response here is breathtaking, and astounding, and deeply challenging. They didn't rise up and pick at the government. They didn't say, hey, that's not fair. How dare you? It doesn't say they merely accepted the plundering of their property. It says they joyfully accepted it. This is one of those places in the Bible, there's lots of them, I mean, really, most of the the Bible in different ways, but this is one of those places in the Bible where if you're not careful, you can just read over this and say, not say, excuse me, not say, that's weird. That's really weird. They got their stuff taken away for doing something that honored Christ, to glorify Christ, and they rejoiced about it. The author clearly connects the dots from their action, namely compassion for those in prison, to the consequences, namely their property plundered, and their joyful acceptance of it. That is strange, glorious, beautiful, challenging, These Christians got together. If any of them had a house left or a home left, they got together and had a party to celebrate that they had suffered persecution for Christ's sake. This may seem strange to us, and in some ways, I mean, I think it's meant to. This is what the gospel does when it goes deep into our lives, of course. But in, in one sense, it shouldn't be strange to us because we see this peppered throughout the New Testament. Remember in Acts chapter 5 when the apostles were arrested for preaching about Christ and the council of Jewish leaders kind of, well, let, circled around them and here's what they said. Well, here's what it says in Acts 5, 40 and 41. It says, And when they had called in the apostles... Listen to this. It says they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore and then they let them go. Then the apostles left their presence, the presence of the council, rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Peter, in his first epistle, says that our rejoicing now in suffering for Christ will result, result in rejoicing at his return. When he says in chapter 4, verse 13, Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And ultimately, these Christians, whether it's Peter, what he wrote, or the apostles, what they endured and how they rejoiced, they're just doing what the Lord Jesus said to do. In Matthew chapter 5, he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. And then again, Luke, in his account of that same teaching of Jesus, said, Leap for joy in that day. Well, that's exactly what these Christians did. Their suffering was for the name of Christ and they accepted it joyfully. They took it joyfully. Now, the all-important question for us, we might be challenged, we might be Think that's strange, we might think that's amazing and beautiful, all of that, but the question is what dynamic was at work in them to make them like that? What what fuels a life of risk taking compassion and joy? I would suggest that it's, it's this manifestation or this flavor of Christianity that magnifies Christ the most. It's when, when, like Paul says, I count all things as rubbish for the surpassing value of knowing Christ. When things are lost or, you know, whether it's through persecution or whatever, trials of all kinds, it's when we count it joy, it's when we say Jesus is better than that that thing that I'm losing. Jesus is better than that. That is when Christ is magnified as better than comforts and good thi- even good things, comfort and health and wealth and family and everything. Good things even. Christ is magnified as better than those things when we lose them and rejoice in him. The explanation for this joy and risky compassion is given in the second part of verse 34 in the word when it says this, since you knew you had a better possession and an abiding one. You, let me just, here's what he says. You accepted joyfully the plundering of your property Because, here's the explanation, because you knew you had a better possession and an abiding one. So Christians have a possession that is qualitatively better than anything in this life that can be taken away. And Christians have a possession that is quantitatively better or more durable than anything that can be taken away. And I said this at the beginning. I want to say it again. The key to invincible and courageous joy when faced with suffering, trials, difficulty, whether it's persecution or any kind of suffering, is in confidently knowing that what we have in Christ is infinitely better and more durable than anything we stand to lose here. I find it fascinating that the author says, gives the reason for this joy that they had knowledge of something. They knew something. They had a confident knowledge of this possession that they had in Christ. Verse 34 says, since you knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one, they knew something and it gave them invincible joy to gladly let whatever Gladly accept whatever consequences came in the cause of compassion and obedience to Christ. They had knowledge. It was knowledge. We live in a time where feelings rule the day rather than knowledge. Now don't take offense at this. This is an exercise I did and I was amazed at how many times I say it. So I try to do better. Go through your day sometime and just, just, just pay attention to how many times people say things like, I feel, instead of I think, or I know, or I believe. Feelings abound. Feelings rule the day. And that's not a knock, okay? It's just an expression. But we live in a time where feelings rule the day. And I'm not, we shouldn't be opposed to feelings. Of course. Feelings are wonderful, wonderful servants, but they're terrible masters. When they serve truth, they're wonderful. We don't want to be emotionless Christians. I mean, that's, we got our doctrine, but we have no life, no affections, no emotions. No, that's not what we're going for. But to be ruled by feelings is a sure road to disaster. These Christians were not ruled by feelings. Their feelings told them, ouch, this hurts. But they knew something. That they had a better and abiding possession. Hosea, the prophet, God speaking through Hosea, I should say, and Hosea 4.6 says, my people are destroyed for a lack of Feelings. No. <laughs> knowledge. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. When we are ignorant of God's truth, it makes our faith weak and tepid and our joy shallow. Strong feelings without knowledge is no virtue at all. So, what is this possession that is better and abiding? that we are to have knowledge of well in a nutshell it is christ himself and the fullness of his salvation it is christ himself it is jesus himself we get him the most glorious of all people existing we get christ John Piper has a book. It's a great book. It's called God is the Gospel. And he says, if, he says, we need to do a heart check. I'm kind of paraphrasing. But he says, if we, if we think about the gospel as getting everything, but supremely it's not God himself, we've missed the best thing. In other words, forgiveness, eternal life, Right? We'll get resurrected bodies someday. We're gonna be in a new heavens, and new earth. All that's wonderful. But not if Christ isn't there. We get him, the fountain of all life. I mean, he has life in himself. He has resurrection life in himself. He is the fountain of life and joy and everything that is good. We get Christ and we get the fullness of salvation. and we need to know these things, not passively know them. Not a passive knowledge. Yeah, 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 I know all that, but no, no, no. We need to know these things. We need to know them better. We need to know them down to our bones. Know them so well that they fuel our lives for the glory of God. Here's what the the author says. He says, Do not throw away your confidence. So we need to have knowledge, confident knowledge. Do not throw away your confidence. Confident knowledge of Christ and his glorious salvation. And I would suggest this is not a one-time download. It's not like we get this during a weekend retreat or one Sunday morning. But this is a knowledge we grow in, we grow in over time, and we grow in together. I love how this author is, he's always, it's important for us to notice he's writing to a church, he's writing to a group of people, all of these things. You all had compassion on those in prison. And you all joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you all knew you had a better possession and an abiding one. Peter, at the end of his second letter, says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grow in grace and knowledge. Yes. Think of all that we've covered in the book of Hebrews. We, Hebrews chapter 4 talks about just thinking about what this possession is it's rest for our souls, it's nearness to God. It's mutual possession. God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. It is a new heart with love for God and a desire to obey him. It is intimate knowledge of God. It is total forgiveness such that God remembers our sins no more. It is a clear conscience so that we may serve the living God. All of this and more belongs to us in Christ and foremost it's not all of these things foremost it is the giver of these things who gives us himself but here's the point and and this is hopefully this is what we're doing every sunday morning is We want to drive these things into our hearts together in what we sing, in praying together, in the preaching of God's word, in fellowship. All of this is meant to drive these things into our hearts so that we have confident knowledge of them. You must know this 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 wonderful possession, Christ in the fullness of salvation, as a present reality now. Okay, experienced, known. That's the word. The word "know" in Greek it's the word "gnosko." It's it's um it doesn't mean just mental knowledge or you know uh, cerebral understanding. It means to know experientially. And so we want to know these things. We need to know these things. Now, we know them in present. We know them presently in part. We know them truly, but we know them in part presently. Real and precious, though experienced not fully now, right? We have real forgiveness now, real relationship with God now. We can truly draw near to God now. So we must know this as a present reality and you must also know this possession as a future reality in its fullness. And I think often this is what's missing for people that have relatively comfortable lives. This, this, this reality that the fut- this is not our best life. It's not. The only people this is the best life for are those who don't know Christ and who are going to hell. It's the best best life for them. Our best life is to come when Christ comes. It is. So you must know this as a future reality in which it will be full and perfect forever. What does the author say in verse 36? He says this, you have need of endurance Keep going. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. I think he's pointing to the future. Something we don't experience now. And the reason I say this is because verse 37 says, for or because yet a little while and the coming one is coming and he will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. Paul says in Philippians 1, to depart and be with Christ is far better. We want to know Christ and the fullness of his salvation in such a way that we could say that. That, that if, if I compare Jesus and being with him, and of course Paul wasn't saying he wasn't with Jesus, there just was a way of dying in this body and going to be with Christ that would be better And we want to know Christ in such a way that when when we say, Okay, what everything I stand to lose here, I mean my wife, my five well, six children for me, the blessings of friendship and camaraderie and, and enjoyments of life, all of that, and Christ and say better. To go to be with him is better. We want to know that, don't we? This is our possession. Now, if you're thinking, I don't—that seems. I'm just saying we want to know Jesus in such a way that we would say that, don't we? Second Corinthians five two, Paul says, "In this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Knowledge of your possession in Christ fuels a courageous joy." now knowledge of these things so we're to meditate on these things we're to help one another with these things we're to sing these things and pray these things and preach these things so that they get down into us so that it affects the way that we live And we're to know these things so that we taste them and see them as a great treasure. Verse 35 says, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. I think, of, I think it's a chapter 11, verse 30, or verse 25 or 26, where it says about Moses, he, you know, he, had all, he had all the world in his hands. I mean, he was a prince of Egypt, and it says he accepted the reproaches of Christ as greater treasure than all the wealth of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking to the reward. And it was not the promised land. He was looking to a heavenly city. He was looking to the eternal reward. Jesus says, when you suffer for my sake, rejoice for great is your reward in heaven. Listen to what John Calvin said. In his commentary on this passage, he said, indeed, wherever the feeling of heaven, heaven, excuse me, wherever the feeling of heavenly goods is strong, there is no taste for the world with its allurements, so that no sense either of poverty or of shame can overwhelm our minds with sorrow. If we then wish to bear anything for Christ with patience, and I would add and joy <laughs> He didn't say that, but I did. Let us grow accustomed to frequent meditation on that happiness in comparison with which all the goods of this world are but garbage. Do you want to have a strong, durable, invincible, and courageous joy? I do too. Then you and I need to grow in the knowledge of this great possession which belongs to us in Christ. He has purchased it. We don't need to merit it. We don't need to pay for it. He has purchased it fully for us, but we need the knowledge of it. May God's spirit illuminate our hearts and minds. read, prayed this earlier. We sang about it. Open the eyes of my heart, O Lord, that we may know, Paul prays in Ephesians 1, what is the hope to which you've called us, Is Christ and his full salvation your greatest possession, your most precious treasure? If it is, if he is and it is, then you are the most free and happy person on the planet. Free to live faithfully for Christ. Free to take risks for the good of others in love. Because at the end of the day, what Now I'm saying that I'm preaching this to myself. I hope you realize that. I'm not saying I got this figured out. But at the end of the day, what can happen to us? Jesus said, Don't fear those who can kill your body and can't kill your soul, can do no more to you. He's like, see, all he's saying, all they can do is kill you. (laughs) It's like, well, geez, that seems like a big deal. Right? But that's his point. Don't fear them. And that's what Paul says in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? With Christ, all things. Would you stand with me? Let's pray.